I appreciate so much the confidence of your pastor in asking me to come here today and with Jerry giving me such a warm welcome. I suppose I should explain the uh, perfect attendance thing about the Rotary. Actually, I made it to 40 years instead of 37, but my wife got tired of it because our vacations were planned around my Rotary meetings and uh, my days off and everything, and she said, I think 40 years is enough. So I quit. I missed one day, and uh, my perfect attendance is over, so I explained that. This is a wonderful day, isn't it? I hope you're having a wonderful and a great day. Uh, the Bible says that this is the day the Lord has made. And because of that, we will all be glad and rejoice in it. When I was at the seminary, our dean gave me a story once that I've used often when people ask me, well, how's your day going? I use this story to explain it. A story about a farmer who was on the witness stand. He was being cross-examined by a defense attorney. And the defense attorney said, sir, we... We noticed in your statement that you made at the scene of the accident, in fact, he said your very first words to the investigating officer were that you never felt better in your life. And yet, here we are in court. You sued my client. Said, can you explain that statement? Farmer said, yes, sir. Said, I think I can. Said, I got up early one morning. I hitched my mule to my wagon. My dog was sitting by the side. We were headed up the road, got almost to the top of the hill, and your client came over on the wrong side of the road. Hit us head on. Knocked my mule into one ditch, and my dog was in another ditch, and I was lying on the pavement seriously hurt. Highway patrolman came along. He saw my mule first, and my mule was suffering a good bit, so he whipped out his pistol. He shot him. He saw my dog. My dog was suffering. He shot him. And he came to me and said, Sir, how are you? I said, I never felt better in my life. I, I just uh, decided if you don't want to get shot, just tell folks you never felt better in your life. And... Uh, that's the kind of day that I always have. It's, uh, it's great, great to be here. I, uh, I've, I've been a pastor since I was 15 years old. Actually, I was, I've been preaching since I was 15 years old. I was a pastor from age 17, which is a long, long time. And I love being a pastor. I, uh, if, if God would let me, I would have done that all my life and would still be doing it if God would let me. But he keeps interrupting uh, my plans and lets me do other things. And uh, some years ago, 20-some-odd years ago now, when I went to seminary, I uh, 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 left the ministry, my mother felt. She felt I'd left the ministry because I'd gone to seminary. And often my friends asked me, said, well, do you miss being a pastor? And uh, my politically correct answer always was yes and no. There are some things I miss. There's some things I don't miss. I haven't been to a Baptist business meeting in 25 years. haven't missed that. <laughs> Uh, they don't call my home at uh, supper time like I, like I did when I was a pastor. I don't miss that. But there are some things I do miss, and among those, the chief among those, is the relationship with children. Uh, children are, are important to a church because they are our future. They're, they're, they're going to be here when we're gone. And I love, I love children. And over the years, children have been very special in my life, and they've done some very special things for me. In fact, I have boxes of things they have made with Crayolas and construction paper and stuff, and I just refuse to throw these things away because, not because they're of any work of art, but because of the children that gave them to me. And one of the things that children often did, they would write notes uh, uh, to the pastor, and though these are not ones that I received, I thought you might be interested in the kind of mail that Scott gets from children. Uh, I notice he has a blog site, and that's probably for adults, but but... 
Here are some children, some letters that children have written to their pastor. A little girl named Carla in Salina, Kansas. She wrote, she's 10 years old, she wrote, Dear Pastor, are there any devils on earth? I think there may be one in my class. <laughs> Alexander, age 10, who lives in Raleigh, North Carolina, he wrote, Dear Pastor, please say a prayer for our Little League team. We need God's help or a new picture right away. <laughs> Arnold, age 8, who lives in Nashville, Tennessee, wrote, Dear Pastor, I know God loves everybody, but he never met my sister. <laughs> Stephen, age 8, in Chicago, wrote, Dear Pastor, I'd like to go to heaven someday because I know my brother won't be there. <laughs> Ralph, age 11, in Akron, Ohio, wrote, Dear Pastor, I liked your sermon on Sunday, especially when it was finished. <laughs> hate kids like that. But the best one was by a little girl over in Tacoma, Washington, Lauren, nine years old. She wrote, Dear Pastor, I think a lot more people would come to your church if you moved it to Disneyland. I, <laughs> I think she's probably right. I told Jerry the other day when he called that uh, uh, he asked me what I was going to talk about today. And I said, well, uh, they don't know me and I don't know them, but God knows both of us. And I said, I guess we'll just have to ask God and find out what God wants me to say today. And that's better anyway if we'll do that. And uh, he impressed upon me to share something today that <clears throat> I don't often do because it is so personal that uh, it is emotionally uh, draining for me to share this message because it is about me and about my life. Uh, but it is very practical and it is something that I've always seen God use to help somebody in the group. And so there's somebody here today, and I don't know you, and, and uh, I don't know who you are, but there's somebody here today that God has something very special to say to you, and um, I want to I be his messenger today. And I would say to you that even if this does not necessarily fit you, you know somebody that it does fit, or there'll come a day when you'll need it. So listen carefully, not to what I say, but listen to what God says. On May the 22nd, 1997, at 3 o'clock in the morning, the doctor came out of the intensive care unit at Marin General Hospital near Golden Gate Seminary to tell me that our 37-year-old daughter, Rhonda, had succeeded in doing what she had been trying to do since she was 16 years old. Early in her life, Rhonda was beset with severe depression. And at age 16, for the first time, she took an overdose of prescription drugs, trying to end the misery of her life. But we found her in time and rushed her to the hospital, and her life was spared. And in those 21 years, more times than I can count, Rhonda tried over and over and over again to end the misery of the depression that she had suffered so long. But that morning at 3 o'clock, the doctor came out and said to me, Your daughter is dead. I went into the room where her body lay and said a final goodbye to Daddy's little girl. She had been that all her life. In fact, the very night that she died, she came in before she went to bed and took the medicine. She came in and sat in my lap. And told me again how much she loved me. And I told her how much I loved her. But my daughter was gone. I've lost grandparents. 
I've lost friends. I've lost all kinds of people in my life, but never anyone that close. And our family had never suffered that kind of loss. And it was the kind of loss that no one wants to have, but often does happen today. And um, we suffered um, a great grief, still do, because of the loss of our little girl. Southern Baptist Convention was meeting about three weeks later, and uh, I'd been asked by a friend of mine to preach in his church in, in Dallas. He knew Rhonda because he'd been in our home many times, and he, he called me when he heard about Rhonda's death, and he said, uh, I understand Rhonda has died, and you're scheduled to preach in my church on Sunday, on this Sunday. And uh, if you don't feel like doing that, we certainly will understand, but if you want to, we'd love to have you come ahead. And so I said to James, I said, well, God called me to preach when I was very, very young, and though I had not preached after Rhonda's death, I said, I will preach again, and it might be better if I preached for a church where I knew no one. And so I agreed to keep the uh, commitment to preach in Dallas that Sunday. But then as I began to think about what, what could I say, what could I... What should I say uh, as I stand to speak to that group of people? And God reminded me of a sermon that I had prepared as a seminary student many, many years before. It was a sermon that I had preached a number of times in churches where I'd been, and it always seemed to help somebody as I preached that sermon. But as I thought about that and as God dealt with me and with that message, all of a sudden it real, I realized that this is what God was trying to say to me. That this was more than a sermon. The sermon was true because it was from Scripture. And the sermon was always helpful. But it was not something that I had personally lived. But what God wanted to do in my life at that moment in my life was basically to practice what I had preached. And so that morning I preached that sermon from the book of James about how to handle tough times. And I want to share that message with you today because either there is something in your life that is a very difficult and hard time that God wants you to deal successfully with, or you know someone, or you will experience a tough time, and God wants you to know that He's already provided a way for you to deal with that successfully. A group of Christians much smaller than this group gathered 2,000 years ago to hear a pastor by the name of James preach and the sermon he preached as he stood that day went something like this. Dear brothers and sisters, is your life full of difficulties and temptations? Then be happy. For when the way is rough, your patience has a chance to grow. So let it grow. And don't try to squirm out of your problems. For when your faith, patience is finally in full bloom, then you will be ready for anything strong in character, full and complete. If you want to know what God wants you to do, ask Him. He will gladly tell you because He is always willing to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask Him. And He will not resent it. But when you ask him, be sure that you really expect him to tell you, because a, a doubtful mind will be as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, and every decision you then make will be uncertain as you turn first this way and then that. So if you don't ask with faith, 
don't expect the Lord to give you any solid answers. A Christian who doesn't amount to much in this world should be glad because he is great in the Lord's sight. But a rich man should be glad that his riches mean nothing to the Lord, for he will soon be gone like a flower that's lost its beauty and fades away, withered and killed by the scorching summer sun. So it is with rich men. They will soon die and leave behind all their busy activities. But blessed is the person who endures trial. For when he stands the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The paraphrase of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. So what is God trying to do in my life to handle life's toughest time? First, I'm learning to agree with God that all trials have a godly purpose in my life. I'm learning to agree with God that all trials have a godly purpose in my life. We moved from Texas to Des Moines, Washington, just across the water, uh, 41 years ago to serve as pastor of the Victory Baptist Church. And uh, my wife, Joanne, to whom I've now been married almost 53 years, and she was just in the nursery when I found her. Uh, and our son, Ron, who lives with us now, and our daughter, Rhonda, who is in heaven. We moved to Des Moines 41 years ago. My wife, when I met her in church, I was preaching a revival meeting. She was a bubbly, happy person and a beautiful young lady, and that's what attracted me to her. Anyway, while we were living in Des Moines, some strange things began to happen with Joanne, my wife. She began to have feelings. She began to have problems that uh, she had never had before, and in the process of it, to make a long story short, she was diagnosed uh, as being manic-depressive, uh, which at that time was, I guess, or still is called a bipolar disorder, a, a chemical imbalance in the brain which causes people to have to get real high and to get real low, and she was suffering with that, and on top of that, she had been uh, neglected as a child, her father had been killed when she was about six years old, and her mother had died when she was about eight years old, and she was pushed from family to family, never wanted by anybody, and she handled all of that uh, stress and that uh, uh, by just sort of shoving it down inside and letting that bubbly personality come out until when living here, it sort of came unglued. And anyway, in the process of that, uh, she... Uh, uh, was seeing a counselor, and the counselor recommended a book to her. And one day when I was home for lunch, uh, Joanne said, she said, Honey, I said, I'm reading this wonderful book that I think you would enjoy reading. I said, Well, I love to read books. What is it? She said, Well, it's a book by Hannah Smith entitled The Christian's Secret of a Happy Life. Well, I rather proudly said to her, I said, Well, I have that book. In fact, I have a hardback copy of that book. She had a paperback copy. I said, I have a hardback copy of that book. And I have not found that book to be particularly interesting. And I did what most men do with what their wives suggest. I did not read the book. Well, I was home for lunch again one day, and she brought the subject up again. She said, have you read that book? And I was rather indignant. And I said, I said now, I told you before, I have a hardback copy of that book. And I have not found that book to be of particular interest. 
And I did again what I'd done the first time. I did not read the book. And I was home for lunch again. And for the third time, she brought it up. She said, have you read that book? Well, it didn't take much for me to express my disgust with her. I said, now for the third time, I'm telling you, I have a hardback copy of that book. And I have not found that book to be a particular interest. She said, sit down, I'm going to read it to you. And I did, and she did. And uh, I read that book, and that book became the, uh, the, uh, the substance of some small groups in our church, which led to a wonderful awakening in our church in Portland we, uh, when, we were, when we were down there. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it's a great book. In fact, it's, the book was over 100 years old then. It's still in the bookstores today. It's still a great book by Hannah Smith, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. It's about how you, how you live the Christian life. It's a wonderful book. Well, Joanne likes that book except for one chapter. It's like chapter 12. In chapter 12, Hannah Smith entitles, Is God in Everything? Is God in Everything? And she says in that chapter, that little Bible verse that you and I learned in Sunday school, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. She said that's not just a good verse for kids to learn. She said that is absolutely true. That there is nothing that God allows into your life or into my life that God does not want to use for His own purpose. And my wife had a hard time with that. He thought about a daddy who was murdered, a mother who died, and relatives who didn't want her, and all of the depression and the bad feelings that she was having, and she wasn't sure God could have anything to do with that. But I want to tell you right up front, if you can't agree with God that all things that He allows in your life have a godly purpose, you will never, ever handle tough times. Now, I didn't say you had to like it. I didn't say you had to want it. I just said you must agree with God that all trials, not most of them, but all trials, have a godly purpose in your life. Well, what's God up to when He allows us to handle, uh, have a tough time? What's God trying to do? Well, James says, it said 2,000 years ago, He said the first thing God is doing, God is trying to teach us patience. Patience. Wrong word for today. Bad word for today. We are not built to wait for anything. We want everything to happen today, or maybe yesterday would be even better to have it happen. Patience. Well, the word there is not about time. The word there is a word which is about strength. It means the ability to stand up under stress. And James says when God allows you and me to suffer a hard and difficult experience in our life. God is not trying to see if we will fall. God is trying to build in us the strength so that we can stand when times are tough. And so He allows us to be tested in order that we may become stronger in our faith. I don't know about you, but when things are good, uh, I just sort of cruise along. It's when times are tough, when times are hard, that I have to cry out to God, and I have to plead with God, I have to be open to God, I have to have faith in God when times are tough. So James says the first thing he's trying to do is build in me what I like to describe as spiritual muscle. He's trying to make me stronger so that I can live like Jesus lived. 
But then he said, if you let patience do what it can do, then he said, God is trying to build in me perfection. Perfection. You will be perfect, James says. Well, if you've been a Baptist more than two weeks, you know that ain't going to happen. I mean, (laughs) our songs say we're sinners, our sermons to say we're sinners, and we look in the mirror and we say we're sinners. We know we're sinners. We're not going to be perfect in this life. Well, the word there is not a word about sinlessness. The word that James uses here is a word which means to be grown up. It means to be mature. It means to be becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And so James says, when God allows me to, ha- to face a tough time, the thing He is trying to do is to not only make me stronger, but to help me to grow up and become like Jesus Christ. And so, to handle a tough time, I simply agree with God that all trials, not that He causes all bad things, but He allows these to happen, and He allows it so that I can be stronger and so that I can be more and more like Jesus. Second thing is in verse 5. I'm learning to pray and ask for God's help. Verse 5 in the King James translation, which I memorized the passage in, says, If any man among you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally. It's uh, a little confusing that in the King James it begins with a little word, if. Because if means maybe I have it and maybe I don't have it. But in the original language, it translates since you lack wisdom. The fact of the matter is, I don't have it on my own and neither do you. Nor neither does all of us together know how to handle life's tough times. So James says, since you don't have wisdom. Well, what is wisdom? Well, the word he uses here is a word which has an Old Testament background. It, uh, my, my definition of wisdom is wisdom is the ability to see the right way and the wrong way to handle this tough time and the courage to choose the right way. It's not enough to know the right way. You've got to choose the right way. And so James says, since you don't have that, since you don't have that in and of yourselves, he said, let me tell you what you do. Very simple. He said, ask. Ask. Anybody here not know how to ask? You know, there were, we had two children. Uh, we tried to teach them many things, succeeded in some, um, failed in more than some in teaching them. But there's some things you don't have to teach your kids. And one of the things that you don't have to teach your kids is to ask. You don't have to teach them that. I mean, they come by that quite naturally. In fact, in fact, in their mother's wombs as they're kicking about, they're asking already. Uh, and, and, and when they are born, they have their hand out. And they can't say it, but they mean it. They say, give me, give me, give me. And I got a 51-year-old son who yesterday lives with us. Yesterday, 51 years old, he said, Dad, would you give me? Well, I didn't have to teach him that. He came by that quite naturally. We know how to ask. It's not an issue of knowing how to ask. It's The issue is, who do you ask? Who do you ask? Well, James says, why don't you ask God? Now, isn't that unique? You know, why don't you ask God? You know, again, when we have tough times, we ask everybody else first. You know, we'll ask our wife, our husband, our 
friends, we'll ask the pastor, we'll ask a counselor, we'll ask all these people, and none of that works, then we, then we ask God, maybe. But James says, why don't you start with God? Why don't you ask God? Ask God. Simple, ask God. And why should you ask God? Well, he tells you why you should ask God. He said, ask God, first of all, he said, because God is a person who loves to give. Ask God who gives. God's nature is to give. God wants to give. God delights in giving. God stands ready to give when we ask. So ask God whose nature it is to give. God would not be God if He did not give. So ask God who is a giving God. Ask God. Well, who does He give to? Well, James says, ask God who gives to all. All. Little word. Big, big word. All. The word literally means that He doesn't look at your face. And aren't some of you glad that he doesn't look at your face when you ask? Now, it has nothing to do with your beauty, and it has nothing to do with your color of your skin. Ask of God who gives to all. God, God is impartial in giving, gives to all. How does God give? James says he gives to all liberally, liberally. By the way, parenthetically, to my knowledge, it's the only place in the Bible where God is called a liberal. He's conservative every other way, but he's liberal in his giving. Ask God who gives to all men liberally. That means God gives more than we ask for. And then that last little word that he says, in the King James it says, and upbraideth not. Now that'll, that'll make you think. <laughs> what is he talking about? What does that word mean? The Greek word there literally means no scolding lecture. No scolding lecture. Listen very carefully. If you don't hear anything else I say, when you ask God for help in dealing with a tough time, God will never, ever make you feel stupid because you ask Him. Now, the devil might, and your friends might think you're crazy, but God will not scold you for asking Him for help. So, I'm learning to pray and ask for God's help. In the third place, I'm learning to have complete faith in God. Beginning in verse 6 through verse 8, James talks about a, well, what he, what, what literally he writes about is a double-souled person. Um, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Actually, with our experience of dealing with manic depression in our family, I've come to believe he's talking about a spiritually manic depressive person. You know, uh, a Christian who one week is high as a kite, the next week lower than a snake's belly. In and out, up and down. You never know where they're going to be. They have no real solid, no real solid rock upon which their faith is built and established. So James says that kind of faith is not going to get it done. So you, you need to have complete and total Faith and trust in God. One of my favorite Bible characters always was, but is more so now, is uh, that ancient man whose name was Job. In fact, scholars tell us that the book of Job was the first book that was written in the Bible. It's not the, not the first uh, about the history, but it's the first book that was written. It's interesting if that's true, and scholars say it's true. It's interesting because the book of Job deals with a good man who suffers great tragedy. And his question is the same question that you and I always have, and it always is, why is this happening to me? I'm serving God. I love God. I'm doing right. 
So why does this happen to me? Well, you know the story of Job. It's, it's found in the, about the middle of your Bible. You know that one day folks were gathering up in heaven. Must be Baptists that are gathering. If it just said they had a potluck, I'd know it was Baptist. Uh, but among them comes the, the evil one. And uh, God says to, to Satan, he said, uh, do, you know my, do you know my friend Job? And the devil says, well, of course I know him. I know him real well. I know him real well. I know that he's everything you says he is. I know that I know that he's the richest man in his part of the world. He has a big family and he has friends and he serves you and you have a wonderful relationship. Oh, I know Job very well, the devil said. But he also said, But I'll I'll bet you he doesn't do it for nothing. I bet you the reason Job serves you is because of all this stuff you've given him. All, all these riches and family and friends and everything you've done for him. That's the reason Job serves you. And if you were to suddenly take all this away from him, the devil said I, I, to God, I bet you he would curse you to your face. Now, by the way, that's what the devil thinks about you too. He thinks the reason you're here today is because of what you get from God, get out of God. And that if you were to lose all this stuff, your wealth, your family, your health, your friends, if you were to lose all this stuff, the devil thinks that you would turn away from God. Well, anyway, you know what happened. One day he lost his fortune. The next day he lost his family. And the next day um, his, his friends turned against him. And uh, the next day, he became sick with an incurable disease, a, a disease of the body that, that gave him no rest day and night. All of this happened to him, just bang, 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 bang. And uh, what's going to happen with this man? What's he going to do? Um, what would you do if you lost all your money? And your seven sons and the three daughters were killed in one afternoon. And what would you do when you prayed? It seemed like God wasn't listening anymore. And what would you do? What would you do if you were sick and there was no cure for it? What would, what would your faith be then? And what would you do if your friends didn't understand you? That's an interesting thing about Job's friends. Um, and let me, let me tell you. I used to think a long time ago, I used to think that Job's friends were a Rotarian, a Kowanian, a member of the Chamber of Commerce. That's what I, I used to think. But having spent 20 years in the seminary, I'm convinced that Job's friends were theologians. And when you're in real trouble, for which there is no apparent explanation, you don't want theologians for friends. Now, theologians are wonderful. I spent 20 years with them. But theologians, theologians are people who have answers to questions, even if they don't know what the questions are. They still have answers to them. And their answers are always based upon their theology. And if their theology is wrong, their answers are going to be worthless. And Job's friends had a faulty theology. Their theology was, if you serve God, God's going to bless you. If things are going bad, it means because you've got some kind of secret sin in your life. And if you just get right with God, you know, just confess, get right with God, everything's going to be okay. And Job said, I've checked and I can't find anything. In fact, God himself said... In chapter 2 of the book of Job, God himself said there was no reason for what was happening to Job. Well, what are you going to do? Well, over in chapter 19 of the book of Job, um, Job, uh, uh, his friends have, have left. In fact, Job said of his friends, miserable comforters are you all. 
And by the way, let me just say parenthetically, Job's friends are not all dead. And you'll find them in church. That's where Job's friends will be. They'll be in church. You suffer a hard time for which there is no explanation. They may not say it, but there'll be some who'll think, you know, if you just get closer to God, everything will be okay. You know, if you just come to church a little more, give a little more, be a little more faithful, everything will be okay. And um, just watch out for them. And they're not out there. They're in here. I've, I've seen them. I've heard them. <laughs> so, anyway, that's a diversion. Um, well, what's Job going to do? Well, his friends have come. They've gone. And here's what he says in chapter 9. He says, I'd like to write a book. I don't know what there is about us guys. I want to write a book. I want to write a book. I want to say something. In fact, he said, I'd like to do better than write a book. He said, I'd like to find a granite mountain. I'd like to carve these words in rock and just to make sure that everybody can read them. I'd like to cast them in lead. Must be pretty pardoned. Must be something he really wants. By the way, God did better than Job thought. God put his words in here, and this will be here when the granite mountain is gone. God always gives more than we ask. What's Job going to say? Well, here's what he said. In chapter 19, he said, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that one day He's coming to this earth. And I know that one day I'm going to see Him for myself. Job says, that's all I know. Friends, I want to tell you, that's all you need to know. You need to have that faith which is built upon the rock. And when the storms come and swirl about you, you stand safe on that rock of faith and total trust in God. Job said, I know my Redeemer lives and He's going to make things right. Well, the fourth thing I'm learning. Learning to keep my eyes fixed on the goal that is at the end of the way. In verse 9 through verse 12, Job launches into a discussion about poor folks and rich folks. And uh, if you're not careful, you could, you could miss the point. Because, again, if you read literally what he says, there must be something good about being poor. I've never found that. But, uh, you know, he, he says, you ought to be glad if you're poor because you're great in God's sight. And he also said there's something bad about being rich, and I haven't discovered that either. I don't, I don't know what there is bad about being rich. But, you know, you could, you could get lost in that. That's not, that Job is not talking about money. Job is talking, I mean, uh, James is talking about how we see life. And here's the point. Most of us live our lives looking around us at other people. If we're poor... We see the rich, we covet what they have. If we're rich, we see the poor, we feel sorry for them. We live looking around us. And James says, if you're going to make it, you need to keep looking up to him who stands at the end of the way, ready to give the crown of life to those who endure. Keep looking up. Look to the, him who stands at the end of the way. When I was in college, I was pastor of a little church 41 miles from Hardin-Simmons University where I went to college. A uh, little church up near Stamford, Texas. Uh, anybody, anybody here from Texas? Uh, admit it? Okay. 
Um, that's where I was born. That's where my mother was. I didn't have a choice. That's where she was when I was born. I got over as quick as I could. And came out here. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway. <laughs> You can always tell a section, but you can't tell them much. Where was I? I was in Stanford, Texas. I was pastoring this little church in Stanford, Texas, uh, near Stanford, Texas, called the Plainview Baptist Church. Now, it was nowhere near Plainview, Texas. It was near Stanford, Texas. It was called the Plainview Baptist Church. And the reason was, it was in Plainview. You could see it. Long, long way. White building, black dirt, farmland. Plainview Baptist Church. That's true. Um, in our church was a couple, Cecil and Ayla Hughes. Cecil worked for the gas company. He was Sunday school superintendent. She taught Sunday school. He was a deacon. They were there every time the doors were open. They were wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, Ayla, the wife, had cancer. She had arthritis so bad she couldn't even do her housework. They'd had their share of suffering. They had this beautiful little eight-year-old girl who was the joy of their life. Her name was Celia, named after her daddy. One Saturday night, as I was getting ready to go up on Sunday to preach at the little church, the phone rang, and it was Nick Huggins, another deacon. And Brother Huggins said, Pastor, said Celia Hughes, this little eight-year-old girl, Celia Hughes died this afternoon, and you need to come as quickly as you can. He'd been walking to school on Monday morning and slipped on the icy sidewalk and fell and bumped her head. And all week long, they'd tried to get her well. And on Saturday, they decided to take her to the children's hospital in Dallas. And her daddy got the car warmed up and went up and picked up his little girl, and she died in his arms. The deacon said, you need to come as quickly as you can. And we gathered our stuff and went that very night to that home where we'd been on so many, many happy occasions there into the bedroom, and Ayla, the wife, was lying upon the bed, and Cecil was sitting here, and other friends were gathered around. And I went over and took their hands, and I prayed to God that they would not ask me what I knew they wanted to ask me. But Cecil said, Pastor, why did God let our little girl die? I didn't have an answer then. <clears throat> I don't have an answer now to his question. On Wednesday of that week, I preached my first funeral for that little eight-year-old girl. Um, I asked God, I said, God, give me something I can say to this family and these friends that will help them through this tough, difficult time. He reminded me of the experience of David after his adultery with Bathsheba. You know that a child was conceived and a son was born. But the son was sick and David was in the temple praying and the news came that his son had died, and David said these words to God. He said, I know that my son cannot come back to me, but I know that I can go to be with him. And I took just that thought, and I tried to plant that seed of hope in the heart of that mother and father and those friends that afternoon. We went out to the cemetery, put the little body in the cold ground, and I went back to school, and I prayed for those people like I've never prayed for anybody in my life. What on earth will this do to their faith? Well, I didn't have to wait because they were right back in church the next Sunday, right over here, second row, first two seats, dark glasses on because the pain was still there. And when I gave the invitation, they came forward. Cecil said, when you're through, I'd like to say something. And so when the invitation was over, the little church sat down, and I stood with Cecil and Aileen. Here's what he said. He said, when our little girl died, he said, our first thought was to turn away from God. But he said, then we thought, if we turn away from God, who do we turn to? 
And he said, we're here today to say to you, but more than that, to say to God, that we know our little girl can't come back. But we do have every confidence that someday we're going to go to be with him and with her. And until then, we're going to continue to serve God with all our hearts. Several years after that, the Ayla, the wife, died. And she went home to be with Jesus and with that little girl. And the last time I heard from Cecil Hughes, he was still teaching Sunday school, still serving God, just like he said he would. But you say, how on earth could he do that? Just like I'm trying to do it, and just like you can try to do it as well. Agree with God. Just agree with God. <clears throat> that all trials have a godly purpose in my life. Learn to pray and ask for God's help. He won't make you feel stupid. Find that rock of faith that you stand on. Total trust in God. But above everything else, keep looking up to Him who stands at the end of the way. And Jesus says, if we'll do that, we'll make it. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Now, I don't know, I do not know who is here today who has that special need for help. God has given a plan for dealing with life's toughest times. Are you willing to take God's advice and do what he asks you to do in order to find victory in the midst of trouble. In a moment, uh, we're going to pray. And uh, before we pray, I just feel that uh, we ought to offer the opportunity for anyone who happens to be here today with a special need, that you need somebody to pray with about this difficulty you're facing. We're going to ask some of the elders and others to be here at the front. And if there's something on your heart that you need to pray with somebody about, you need there's, there's a tough time you're dealing with and you just need somebody to pray with you, I'm going to ask you to just get up and come here to the front and meet with one of these men or women and just let them pray with you. And by your coming, say, I want to do what God wants me to do to meet this tough time. While our heads are bowed, and it may be difficult to get up, but these are here. If there's something, something you need to talk to God about with a friend, they're here. And they want to do that. Just come.